Welcome back to another episode of Rooted. Today, we have special guest Avery Stafford. He's from the Pacific Northwest, and uh, Mike Harrison, our pastor, will be joining us today Whoa. Uh, to help facilitate this conversation, and he knows Avery. So, without further ado, Avery Stafford. Stafford, can you uh, speak? Yes, Stafford oh. can speak. <laughs> there we go. He comes to the table with the ability to speak. <laughs> That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Avery, and if, you, if you could describe in great detail your breakfast today, <laughs> what did you have for breakfast today? Well, I just walked upstairs with a beautifully brewed cup of Illy coffee with some half and half and a few flakes of pink Himalaya salt. Oh, just a few. Just a few. Not, not a lot. Not playing around this morning. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. Well, thanks for being on today and giving us your time. We're pretty excited about this one. Uh, so we have Mike here as well, your young protege, uh, to help us conduct the interview as well. But um, So no one has ever described Mike as my young protege. Well, I don't know if he should bam. be insulted or if I should be <laughs> my young protege. <laughs> uh, right. So, Avery, we're going to start with an introduction, getting to know you. And uh, Mike's going to lead you through that since he knows you better than any of us here. So, Mike Michaels, take it away. Yeah, so Avery, you and I met in seminary, Multnomah University, 2015. Yes, sir. <laughs> and, yeah, man. Uh, I was in the dormitory because I was flying out for two weeks of residency at a time. Avery and Nina, his wife, were kind enough uh, to host me. Facts. It was a mission of mercy. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. <clears throat> yeah, your situation was a hot mess, man. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, it was like, was it hot or something? You didn't have... No fan, no, no air conditioning. No fan. And, and the staff was um, mostly not there. Non-existent. On the oh, man. <laughs> And there was something about linen and and towels and stuff. You didn't have access to that kind of stuff. Right. Welcome to college. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that was terrible. You know, I had talked to the powers that be about students coming in, and not necessarily about our cohort, but just in in prior years. And so that, that was, that was an interesting setup. And, and Nina and I love to host people anyway. And, and I, I think that Nina has the spiritual gift of hospitality. And so yep. just to extend hospitality was our privilege. And then as I got to know you, it, it became more than my privilege. I was, I was getting to, to love on my brother. So <laughs> I, I, I feel like that was a pretty cool deal for me. Well, hey, Avery, what I wanted to start with is I was always intrigued by your background. So let's start with, you know, your formative years. You know, your dad, who, as I recall, is like a megachurch celebrity kind of in the Bay Area. Um, tell me all about, you know, that life growing up in your household. 
Well, dad was a preacher all of my life. He he was the guy that when he said he was saved, he remembered what he was saved from. He, he was one of those guys. You know, there's a lot of people that say they're saved, but they don't remember what they were saved from. Yeah, that dad remembers what he was saved from. He was the guy that when he walked down the street towards you, you took a deep breath and you crossed the street. He was that guy. <laughs> I mean, in all seriousness, you know, if you if you could smoke it, drink it, shoot it up, snort it, he did it all. And so when he said yes to Jesus, he he was saved. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're we're talking about his soul as well as his life. Jesus saved him. So by the time that I came along into this world, dad was already an associate minister for a church and changed his life around and was on the path to discipleship in Christ. And so uh, I I was born in Los Angeles. So my formative years um, were in Southern California and then eventually from the fifth grade on uh, was in the Central Valley in California. But because dad was a a preacher you know, in, in the church fellowship that we grew up in, we called them gospel preachers. Dad was a gospel <laughs> preacher. Because dad was a gospel preacher and because he preached for human beings, we moved around a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, meaning that your tenure only goes so far when you're preaching the gospel. So, I've lived all over California. Um, We did a a short stint even in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where dad grew up and and my grandmother was still living at that time. And so we got out of California for about four months just to give dad a break and ended up coming back to central California. And so we've been all over the place. I remember uh, when we were in in the valley, probably the, the best known town in the the valley is called Fresno. And uh, Fresno is like a really small, big city, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, a lot of crime, uh, drug uh, trafficking, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, it's kind of kind of the place where the bad stuff happened. And dad was connected to this television program called The One Way. Just think about the name of that, The One Way. I mean, that, that communicates everything that you need to know about our, you know, doctrine and our perspective on on ministry and church and all that kind of stuff. And it was cool because dad was the only African-American pastor on this program. A lot of white dudes, brother, all over the valley, you know, with right. that perspective. And so he got all of the questions that involved race and color and all that kind of stuff. It was a call and telephone show. Wow. In the mid 70s to early 80s. And people would call in questions. And uh, there was a moderator that would take the calls over the air and then three panelists. And dad was usually one of the pa- panels. He was he probably did the show maybe once every two months, something like that. It always cracked me up when somebody brought the heat about color or race. 
And then the moderator would take a deep breath and say, well, Josh, you want to take that one? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) It was was pretty funny. But because of that television show, people just endeared themselves to him. And he endeared himself to them because he shot straight from the word of God. Mm -hmm. His answers were always Christ-centered. And so because of that, man, he built a lot of relationships uh, uh, among churches of all different sizes and different denominations. And so even though I didn't know the word collaboration and I certainly didn't have a theology about unity in Christ, I watched it in real time because dad was living it Mm. just as somebody that loved God and loved people. So it's pretty cool, man. Now, I know your dad, you know, he passed away in the last few years. Yeah. The funeral was something, man. It was it was a packed house. Really? You know, yeah, people from um, the L.A. area uh, all the way up to the Bay Area came to the Valley for his funeral. And um, it was it was quite the live testimony uh, of his life. So with that strong a figure as a role model, a father, someone who shaped you, talk to me about, you know, your development as a Christian into, you know, your teenage and adult years and your family. Christian family, man. Strong Christian family. With some pretty rigid boundaries. And when you've got rigid boundaries, that can produce some dysfunction you know, an impression that you're more holy and more perfect than you actually are. And uh, that that was kind of the deal with with my family. Um, It was always uh, church and Bible study and evangelism and fellowship ministries and potlucks. It's it's amazing how potlucks are cross-denominational. I've noticed that. I don't know why someone hasn't written a book about that. That's cross-racial, cross-denominational. We're going to have to work on that. Right. Uh, But anyway, yeah, 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 man. (laughs) I I was a part of all of that. Uh, We were the family that before the doors were open, we were there to open them. And we were the last ones to leave. Uh, I said yes to Jesus at a very early age. I was baptized when I was seven. And I meant what I said when I said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. It was real to me and it was my faith. But faith, when you're living at home, can go untested. Mm. So for me, the moment that I figured out, all right, this is not just inherited faith, but it's my own faith. It was the first Sunday after I moved away from home and I didn't have to go to church. And I got up and I got dressed and I went to church and I worshiped the Lord. And I I still remember that moment when I thought, Oh, I guess this is real to me. You know, I'm, I'm not just going to church because dad and mom are making me go. I never felt that, but it was kind of cool to test that. So just in terms of my spiritual growth, uh, seeing Christianity, the walk of Christ modeled for me, 
I was very blessed to, to be raised in a Christian home. So that led you, I mean, all that shaped you in kind of being a minister. So talk about your education. Like, what did that look like? Talk about that journey. Yeah, I feel like I was ready for ministry before I went to school because I was going to the school of Josh Stafford every <laughs> week, you know, and, and Josh was throwing it down from the pulpit. You know? I call him the I called him the fire breathing dragon from Madeira, you know, because uh, he could just flat out preach. You know, it, it's something that most pastors probably experience when you're preaching and teaching and you look out in the audience at your kids and you're thinking, they are not listening. They are not paying attention. I, I totally get that. And it's shocking when you find out, wow, they were listening. They were paying attention. And I was listening and I was paying attention. And because of my love for singing vocal music, I was able to do a, a lot of music growing up uh, and led worship and developed that skill. But dad trained many of us um, in the, the skill of preaching and teaching. So I did a lot of that before I went to school. And so I've, in, in a lot of ways, my path was shaped uh, with or without my permission. <laughs> and uh, and that, that was pretty cool. I ended up going to college and I messed around and I went to class sometimes and didn't go to class sometimes. And <clears throat> I was always a, a student and my first semester in, in college, uh, I was on academic probation. That, that <laughs> Wow. Two words that I had never put together <laughs> in a row. You know, I was that kid. And I needed to get out of that that city and that town and, and just get away and experience life a little bit. And, and that's what happened. I moved to Southern California. My first ministry away from home was at in Compton, California. Yeah. In 1987. Uh, my wife reminded me later, Avery, you were straight out of Compton. I didn't even know it. <laughs> I didn't even know it. I mean, I, I knew that I lived there, but I didn't know that it was like right in the hub, mm -hmm. you know, and I was, uh, that was, that was the experience of getting up to go to church. So eventually I got married, had a baby, had one on the way and decided I need to go back to school. So we packed all of our worldly possessions and moved to Abilene, Texas. And I went to school and got my bachelor's degree in Christian ministry uh, at Abilene Christian University. And that just started the path. I already loved school. I loved the environment of school. I'm a lifelong learner. Uh, but the academic atmosphere, the academic environment is something that I love and, and thrive in. So that was pretty cool. It was unfortunate it was in Texas, but that's another story. <laughs> By the way, I think they made the NCAA tournament in basketball last year. Yeah, man. Did you see that? That was crazy, right? <laughs> crazy. Yeah, man. The ACU Wildcats. They were doing okay until they met, I think, the Kentucky Wildcats. That and then, changed the game. Yeah. yeah, that was a game changer. So you end up in the Bay Area for a, a long stretch of your ministry before I, I met you in a seminary. Uh, and you were a worship leader there. Is that correct? 
Correct. I had, <clears throat> after I graduated from ACU, uh, I was able to do youth ministry for a church up in Port Orchard, Washington. And we were there for about two and a half years. I moved down to the greater Portland area. I discovered Multnomah Biblical Seminary and was admitted there and did my master's degree. And after finishing, God sent us back to California. And so uh, we were there for 17 years and I was uh, doing full-time worship ministry. I was there for, um, I served for three different churches. And the last church prior to moving back up to the Pacific Northwest, I was there for eight and a half years. And when I met you, uh, you were recently relocated to Beaverton. That is correct. And uh, and so you were not only back in the uh, the world of uh, higher education, you know, you're headed towards your doctorate, uh, but you were doing that in part because of the church you pastored, as I understood, because you took a church that has some pretty unique dynamics. So why don't you talk to us about Common Ground? Because I, I know that when we get to your book, um, that all, you know, that whole experience has led you towards where you are, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, it is. It was a big deal for uh, everything that I've experienced, everything that I've written, everything that I've studied and what I'm trying to promote. Um, so I went to school uh, at Multnomah Biblical Seminary and made some some pretty good relationships. And when we moved to California, I was able to maintain some of those relationships. And so when I discovered that Multnomah was going to lead a doctorate of ministry program, I thought, man, I mean, I love Multnomah. Let me find out more about it. Maybe I can do the program long distance from California. And I found out that the director for the doctorate of ministry program was a student at Multnomah when I was a student at Multnomah. And I was doing my MA and he was doing his MDiv. And I thought, oh man, I gotta, I gotta call this brother. So I called him, we had a great conversation about the doctor of ministry program. And I asked him just in passing, look, man, if you know of a church that is looking for a pastor in the Portland area, let me know because I'd certainly love to be considered for that. And I still remember a long, silent pause which in my experience, most of the time is not good. <laughs> and uh, I, I thought, okay, what's going on? And he said, do you know that the church that I serve as elder at, we are looking for somebody? And I did not know that. That was, I believe, seven months before my first day as lead pastor for Common Ground Church. It is a crazy story. I mean, every trusted mentor and friend and spiritual advisor that I had, every one of them said, yes, this is God's movement. Uh, pack your bags. You're moving back to the Pacific Northwest. It was really, really cool. Now, Common Ground Church was uh, the result of a church merger, basically two small churches that came together to create Common Ground Church. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a for real guy, so I'm just going to call it 
like I see it. So some disgruntled Baptists in a small house church, predominantly white, merged together with a Bible church that was predominantly Asian American. The pastor of the Asian American church was the director for the Doctor Ministry program, my friend Derek Tin. And the pastor for the other church was Tim Robnett. And Tim, my dear, dear friend, was a professor at Multnomah when I was doing my master's degree. Hmm. And I'm just watching God just kind of, he's showing off, you know? I'm, I'm just looking at him. <laughs> I'm thinking, come on. Come on. I mean, don't make it so obvious here, right? Don't, don't make it easy. And they embraced this idea that the church ought to be a place that looks like heaven, mm -hmm. where you are a part of that community, regardless of where you came from or what you look like or what you sound like. And so that was a really cool attraction to me. And so I had already known about Common Ground Church. And so now God is God orchestrated me to come back to the Northwest to do my doctorate of ministry and to serve this, this multicultural church. So that was the way that we came back from California back to the, the Northwest. What initiated your, you know, you, you relocate, you're a new pastor, you're in a new place. What initiated you to take on the doctoral program in the middle of all that? I had... Prior to coming, I told the elders and the leaders that that was what I wanted to do. That was a part of uh, a life goal. They agreed to that. Not only did they agree to it, but they put it in my job description. <laughs> they they even gave me some money to, to go. Um, they were gracious with a grant, and they paid for half of my tuition. That. That's absolutely amazing. <laughs> so I've got big time love for this church. We were meeting on the campus of a small church plant in Beaverton. Their denomination sold their building and then told them, hey, we sold your building. You got six months to move off the property. That's another story. So when I first met you, that's the first place I attended with you. Yes, and then that's right. the next time I come back, you guys are where you are now, right? Exactly. And you're wondering, hey, what happened? <laughs> yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> don't don't ask me the names of the church or the denomination because if you do, I'm going to tell you. Right. Um, and so <laughs> we we found ourselves in need of space. So God led us to this church called First Baptist Church Beaverton. And at least from our perspective, it was very, very random because it, it was a drive-by. I was driving through the neighborhood, and I saw this church. Nice campus, uh, nice building. I'm like, what's going on here? So I parked in their parking lot, got on my phone, found their website, found the pastor's email, sent him an email in my car. And the next week, he met me in his office, man, to talk about Common Ground Church. So th this, is a, this is a pretty interesting story. 
he was very, very gracious. Walked in his office, thanked me for meeting him. And then he said, I just wanted to meet you face to face to tell you that I'm really not interested in renting any facilities to you. And I thought, okay, why am I here? <laughs> he said, listen, I went on your website and I saw your story, the story of your church, how your church is a, a merger of two churches. It's a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church. And I've, I'm intrigued by that story. And I wonder if you and your church could help me in my situation here at First Baptist Church, because on our campus, we currently have six churches that are meeting on our campus. Six churches. I said, what? He said, yeah. We've got two white churches, a Hispanic church, a Korean church, a Chinese church, and a Bhutanese church. <laughs> Dude, I had to get on Google and look up Bhutanese. I'm like, what is that? <laughs> and I figured, oh, they're from Bhutan. Ah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He said, when I became pastor earlier in the year, the thing that intrigued me even more so than the church that hired me was the fact we've got all these different churches on this campus. It just seems to me like, wow, maybe we could do something together for the gospel. And we haven't been able to do it. We have tried and we have tried and we've tried. And so I'm intrigued that Common Ground Church, somehow two churches decided they wanted to do something together. Mm. Would you be interested in coming onto our campus, not really as renters, but just as a ministry partner, that somehow maybe you could model for the rest of us how to do this thing that we call unity. Hmm. That was amazing and eye-opening. I'd never heard of such. And so we came on the campus for that purpose. And when we started in our cohort talking about our final papers and projects, it just made sense to me. You know, I was, I was trying to be, you know, intellectual and philosophical and, you know, and talk about gospel, church and culture and all this kind of stuff. And I felt like God slapped me on the head and said, just look where I put you. Look where I positioned you. Maybe you should think about that. Maybe you should write about that. That's the reason why I wrote this book. That's the reason why I'm excited to talk about the ministry of collaboration, because God positioned us to be able to do that. Well, why don't I hand it over to these guys, since that was a beautiful segue, <laughs> and let's talk about the book. Yeah, so when collaboration mirrors the Trinity is Avery Stafford's new book, and since you did beautifully introduce us to that, what is the driving force uh, for you to write this book? And uh, what is the purpose you want to for people to get out of this book? Well, the driving force behind the book, I hope when people read it, they'll see the theological foundation for this idea of collaboration. 
collaboration isn't the goal. Being one in Christ is the goal. And collaboration is the practice that helps us to be one. So what I wanted to do out of my experience on the campus of uh, First Baptist Church Beaverton is now called Parkside Fellowship. So on the campus of Parkside Fellowship, our experiences, both positive and not so positive, effective and also fumbled balls, the challenges with relationships, the challenges with uh, figuring out how to do things together and you know, questions like who's going to be in charge and uh, which language is going to be the primary language and uh, are we going to meet during your time or are we going to meet during our time? Are we doing this together or are you leading it and we're really just coming to help you? All of that kind of stuff. That was the motivation for me to write the book. The theology, the the theological foundation for what I talk about in the book is really based on the, the model of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit being one. And so the idea of collaboration mirroring the Trinity really is saying, if we are one, it'll be because we are one like the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one. So that's really uh, the impetus for writing the book and the title of the book. Yeah, and then you have uh, the four rhythms of collaboration. Could you kind of go more in depth with what that is, how you came up with that design? Like in chapter five, you have the uh, pyramid design with you know relationship being that foundation to trust, diversity, inclusion. Uh, if you could just walk us through that and what that means from your book and how that looks practically in your church uh, and what you would like churches to model that after. Let me end with the, the practical and yes. backtrack okay. and start with the theological, because I think it's important to understand that if unity becomes uh, one of the trendy optional ministries for the church, then it becomes a soft suggestion. And, you know, we've got plenty of ministry options to do. Uh, and I have come to the very strong conviction that unity in Christ should not be an option. Jesus never intended it to be an option. And I think that because most churches know about unity, but don't have any intentional practices about unity, then it's a strange kind of um, undefined conversation. And so it is reduced to events that we do every now and then, you know, the promise keepers of the world and, and you know, the, the uh, what, what's, what's the event where students go and pray around the flagpole, you know, that kind see of thing, you, you know, yeah, see you at the pole, right? <laughs> you know, so we do the see you at the pole and then, you know, we stay there for 20 minutes and we look at strangers around the pole and we <laughs> turn around and we say, see you next year around the pole. <laughs> <laughs> 
so I start with Jesus. He is on his way to the cross. He's going to give up his life. He could have said anything. He could have talked about anything as he is on his way to the cross. But what he says is, I pray that they would be one. John chapter 17. Of all the things that he could talk about, because he knows he's going to the cross. He's already predicted it. He's already taught people uh, about it. He's told his disciples, I'm, I'm going to give up my life. Usually when you see death coming, you're going, the things that you say, the things you're going to do, they're, they're going to be important. They're going to be priorities. He says, I want them to be one. Them is my, my believers, those that believe in me. And he qualifies what he means by one. I want them to be one like I am in you, Father, and you are in me. That intrigued me. Because when I've heard lessons about unity and being one, it really focused on we need to do stuff together. It really didn't talk about what it means to be one. We are, we're experts on doing. We are poor at being. Mm -hmm. So how do you be one? Well, look at me and the Father and the Spirit model oneness after us. That intrigued me, man. I mean, that that was powerful for me and I couldn't get away from that. And so my question was, how can the church be one like the Father, Son, Holy Spirit? I was leading a communion time at Common Ground. And in preparation for that, I was trying to figure out where the Spirit and the Father were at the Passover meal. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but when we do communion, we're all in on Jesus and we should be, we absolutely should be. But where was the Father when Jesus said, take and eat, take and drink? Where, where was the Spirit? You know, we kind of act like the Holy Spirit was behind the curtain waiting for Pentecost, you know, so he could come through you know, enclose the fire. I'm here. <laughs> no, that, that didn't satisfy me. And so I began to think about the father as God who is for us, is rooting for us. And Jesus is God who is with us. The Greek text says, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us and the spirit as God who is in us. That, that template or that model, the father who is for us, the son who is with us, the spirit who is in us, gave me something to, to grab a hold of to say, all right, like the father who is for us, I think we ought to be able to be for one another. We ought to be able to root for one another, pray for one another. We shouldn't be fighting against one another and 
fussing against one another and drawing lines and boundaries against one another. That's not being one. Being one would be that we would be like the Father who is for us. Like the Son, we could be with one another. When, when we think about churches in our town, we don't think about churches being with one another. We think about that church on the north side and that church on the west side. And, you know, we think about the Sunrise and Hall congregation and the Central and B congregation and the Sunset and Orchard congregation. We think about the Baptist church and the and the Calvary Chapel church and the Methodist church. That's what we think about. We think about church. We don't think about them being with one another. They're siloed all over town. Mm -hmm. But if we were like Jesus, we would be with one another. And like the spirit who is in us, he's God in us. Man, if we knew one another, we'd be thinking about one another. If we knew about the ministries and, and the gospel agenda and the burdens and concerns of our brothers at that church across town, man, I'd get up every morning and I'd read my verse of the day and I would think, man, they're going through this. And, and because they're in me, I'm lifting them up and I'm rooting for them and I'm praying for them. Now the Trinity himself becomes my model for being one. Mm -hmm. All right, well, how do I be for you and with you and in you? That's where the four rhythms come. Mm -hmm. These four rhythms are basically, it's a pragmatic way to be for one another, with one another, and in one another. Building, uh, excuse me. Let me let me let me start all over. It'll, initiating relationships, building trust, celebrating diversity, and inviting inclusion. Seems to me that these are four rhythms that, if we would practice them, and they become our default as believers in Jesus that the result of that would be a church that is one. And so we're, we're doing more than just reading the scripture and saying, oh, that, that's, that's interesting. He wants us to be one. But none of us know how to do that. Well, if we initiated relationships with that pastor across the town who looks different than me, and I'm already looking at him sideways because I know he voted for the wrong guy, <laughs> that guy. But if I initiate relationships with him and our time together, we build trust. We, we learn to love one another. And we start praising God because, man, I look different than him and and we come from different places and different backgrounds. And, and in our difference, we discover, oh, he's not that bad because he loves fried catfish. So I guess he's all right. You know, <laughs> he can't be that bad. I mean, you know, I mean, th th there's cachet in that because I love fried catfish. And for us to give one another permission 
to be our full selves. I want to hear what you have to say. I want to hear your perspective. Do you know that that process of initiating relationships, building trust, celebrating diversity, and inviting inclusion, you know what that looks like? It looks like being one. So we start with the theology and we end up with the practice. And that's the reason for those those four rhythms. It's got to be more than just some trendy option. They They can serve as a way for us to be one. By the way, Avery, I never trusted you until we ate fried pig ears at Lardo's. That, it matters, <laughs> don't it? It matters. You're like, this city slicker from the West Coast. Who is he? And then we threw down on them pig ears. Oh, nothing better than Lardo's pig ears. That's a game changer. It was a game changer, it man. Was. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> That was the end of episode one. We're going to continue this episode next week. So hopefully you enjoyed this first segment and we'll look more into who Dr. Avery Stafford is as a person and how he relates to his area. And so stay tuned for next week episode. Bye-bye.